Good morning. Okay. Today we will be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. I will be reading Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as my... I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this control, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. You may be seated. Good job, Michelle. We can all agree that that is a doozy of a Bible passage. Stacy Edwards just looked at me like this. Welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. I want to make a brief announcement before we dive into this very exciting passage today. Um, it's about membership. All during the month of January, we're going to try to emphasize um, from up here uh, the importance of membership here at Christ Community. I'm just going to mention it again briefly today. Um, we want to invite you to be members here at Christ Community. And I, I'll just say one quick thing. Maybe you're a student. You think, ah, I don't belong in membership here. I'm just going to be here for a temporary amount of time or I don't really know if I'm going to stay here for very long. No. Wrong. Join the church. Even if you're going to be here for a month longer. I would invite you to join the church. Why would I say that? Because it's good practice for wherever you go next. It's setting a precedent right now for what it looks like to be part of a local church wherever you go next. Maybe the Lord will keep you here. You don't know. But probably you'll go elsewhere. We would still love to have you as part of this church. Um, Just a quick recap. We're going to do, starting in February, we're going to do three classes, membership classes. The first one I'm going to teach through the statement of faith. The second one... Um, we're going to talk about the vision, missions, value, mission values of Christ community. Kind of why do we exist? What do we care about? What do we value? And the third class is taking a longer look at what does it mean to be a church member? What can you expect of a church? What can the church expect of you? 
those questions answered. If you're interested in that, in your bulletin, there's a QR code that you can scan to uh, indicate that on your Connect card. You can write it on the Connect card on your sheet. We would love to get you into this class. Um, if you have any questions, you can always come talk to me. All right. Before we do dive into this passage, uh, I just want to give a little public service announcement. We do preach through the Bible here in, in, uh, at Christ Community. We pre- preach straight through, which is a very, very good thing. Um, and then we're continuing our series through 1 Corinthians. Um, and as you just heard, as we read the Bible passage, we're going to press into some issues that may be too much for young ears. So that's, that's a parental um, public service announcement. If, if this is going to be too much for your kids, we totally understand. Um, just do what you need to do there. All right. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, it starts a new section, and it's going to stretch from chapter 7 all the way to chapter six, chapter 15. Paul's going to address some specific situations and questions, and today we're going to talk about marriage, singleness, sex, and divorce. Easy, easy topics. When I was a student here at U of I, honestly, I had no interest in getting married. I wanted to do missions. I wanted to go into some far-flung jungle. I wanted to go preach Jesus. I wanted to die in the jungle. I used to say, I'm a bachelor to the rapture. <laughs> I was involved in crew at the time. I was a senior. And Scott and Unchon can attest to this. We had a strange dating culture at the time. Um, as in, we didn't really date. That's what was happening. Uh, in, in the whole crew movement. And as a senior, Scott Berkey, who was my discipler, now an elder here at Christ Community, he encouraged me to consider, just consider, going on a date with another godly young woman. I didn't really want a date. I had this, you know, going to the mission field mentality. But, I, but if I did, I thought to myself, I would date Darcy McCracken. Praise the Lord. But the desire, that desire to go to the jungle... To be a bachelor to the rapture. Marriage, dating. It kind of nags at a bigger question. A question that the the Corinthians were actually getting at here uh, at the beginning of chapter 7. Is there a more spiritual, quote unquote spiritual, or a more like spiritually mature relationship status? Is there a right or a wrong decision to getting married or remaining single? Centuries ago, you guys know this, and still today to a certain degree, if you wanted to be seen as really serious about your faith, you took a vow of celibacy, of singleness, and you became a monk or a nun, and you went out to a monastery. What about today? Do we emphasize, culturally speaking, one relational status over another? Is one more spiritual? What kind of culture do we emphasize here in the church? God wants to help us today. He wants to speak to us through his word to talk about these really important topics. He wants to give us the right perspective, the biblical perspective, the heavenly perspective, so to speak, on singleness, marriage, sex, and divorce. Here's really where we're going to target today, where we're going to hopefully land what you'll walk out of here thinking, is that God wants to use your relational status for his glory. Wherever you are, Right where you are in life, the stage of life that you're at, God wants to use your relational status, married, single, divorced, kids, no kids. He wants to use your relational status right now for his glory. That's what I hope you take away. He's got a design for whatever relational status you find yourself in today. 
We're going to get some practical instruction. That's 1 Corinthians 7. So let's pray. We need, to, we need to listen. We need spiritually open eyes, ears, hearts, and that's what I'm going to ask for right now. So Father, we come to you and we just praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. I'm, I'm thankful to be with these guys this morning. I'm thankful that you have something for us, that we are, we're family and you want to make us more like Jesus. Thank you that you've come to speak to us right now through your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask now for your help, Father. Show us how to glorify you through Christ and the power of the Spirit, through our lives, where you've got us in life right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what we're going to really hone in on is how you're going to glorify God in the, st- in the relational status that you're in right now. And I say glorify God, that's kind of the focus, because of where chapter 6 landed if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. 1 Corinthians 7 is where we're going to be at. The sentence just prior to the first verse of chapter 7 ends like this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 ends by saying, So glorify God in your body. That's where Paul lands his argument. Glorify God in your body. So here's the question. How do we glorify God in an over-sexualized, over-indulgent, get-what-I-want-now culture? And I'm actually talking about first century Corinth. That was their culture. Sounds a lot like ours, right? Here's how we stand out, how we honor God through relational stat, our relational relationship status in a culture like ours. First one, how married people glorify God. That's where it starts. Verse one, reread verse one with me. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In verse 1, Paul quotes something that the Corinthians said to him. They're saying to him in a statement form, but it's really kind of like a question. They're asking, it's better if we don't have sex, right? That's what the Corinthians are saying. The temptation to sexual immorality in Corinth was exceptionally strong. Corinth was considered the sex capital of the Roman Empire. And so the solution, at least in their minds, in the Corinthians' minds, was just complete abstinence, right? No sex, right? God's word offers a different solution to sexual temptation. Marriage. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Paul's answer in a nutshell is this. Man, have your wife. Woman, have your husband. Stay married, have sex. That's his answer in a nutshell. Why? Why do that? Because it's so easy to fall into sexual temptation. That's what he's talking about here. Now, objection that that might raise. That makes marriage sound like it's just a tool to avoid sexual temptation. For some like weak people who can't avoid it. Well, that, that view of if that's all you think marriage is for, that's too simplistic. And that isn't the whole picture. The Bible characterizes marriage in many different ways. For example, it reflects the sacrificial love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. It also pictures the faithful love of God for his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. And throughout the Bible, we, see, we hear the Bible say many times to us, God's words say to us many times, that, that finding a spouse, being in marriage, is a gift. 
So marriage is not only for resisting sexual temptation, but in the context of our passage today, it definitely is part, what we want to take away is that it definitely is part of God's design to help us. So, let's get practical. How do married people glorify God? Let me ask you this question, married people. Are you having sex? You should be. It's a gift from God. In the Garden of Eden, before sin, Adam and Eve's marriage, which is what we see there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's marriage is described as naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. Fully seen, exposed, naked. And no shame. Fully loved, fully accepted, fully, totally enough in the presence of God for one another. After sin entered, what's the first description that we see of Adam and Eve? Their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Shame. This is a picture of shame. Satan's schemes are mentioned in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 too. Just like the garden, he's trying to tempt us towards sexual temptation. He wants to twist what God has made good. You know what Satan wants to do? To your marriage? Pat talked to me about this. We got on the phone together. We talked about this. Before people get married... There's so much desire for one another, right? The bride and the groom, they want to be together. And so what does Satan do with that good desire, that desire to be together? He wants to make you forego the suffering and the sacrifice required to wait and come together now. And then the wedding day comes. Consummation happens. For some people that's wonderful. For some people that's difficult. But after the marriage, what does Satan want to do then? Before the marriage, he wants to put you together. After the marriage, he wants to pull you apart. How does he pull them apart? How does he pull married couples apart? Shame. Same old, same old. Shame. Our pasts, our changing body, our inadequacies, our sin. Shame becomes guilt. And we push each other away. We cover ourselves with fig leaves. We run away. The goal of the wedding night and every time a husband and wife come together ought to be naked and unashamed. The absence of shame. Look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Shame, big picture shame, not just necessarily confined to marriage, but shame that applies to all of us, is defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he has taken your shame that comes as a result of your sin, he's taken that shame upon himself, and he bore that shame to the grave. And now, because the shame is removed, it frees us to be unashamed people. Fully known, all, the, all that's in you. Fully known and fully loved. Deeply loved by God. And that frees us through the cross of Jesus Christ to give ourselves away to others as Christ did for us. The man's body, verse 4, back to verse 4, the man's body doesn't belong to him, himself. It belongs to his wife. 
And the woman's body, it doesn't belong to her. It belongs to her husband. This is radical. I think you recognize this, but I just want to say that explicitly. This is totally different than anything the world would have us believe. Radical in the time of the Corinthians, radical in our time now. You cannot live out the married sex life described in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 6 by reasoning your way through it, by having a give and take relationship with your spouse, by the man dominating, by the woman submitting. You cannot have it that way. What this describes is generosity. It's a different way. It's of thinking of the other person more than yourself. The husband seeks his wife's good. The wife seeks the husband's good. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the very embodiment of that verse, the marriage bed. And that all begins at the foot of the cross. I want to interject something here. Let me just say this too. There's so much that I want to say about all this. I've got like 30 minutes with you guys. So just bear with me, okay? But I want to, I want to interject this. There are legitimate reasons to stay away from sex for a long or a short time. For example, I've heard of health reasons that limit people's ability to have a physical relationship with one another. Tim and Kathy Keller, um, Tim is a, is a pastor out in New York, pretty well known. He's shared very openly about how their physical relationship has been hindered at times because of his cancer treatments. But he's also remarked that about that same period of time where they were not able to have physical intimacy together, that their relationship was nonetheless more intimate than ever. Just want to just say that. There's another reason to stay away from sex and marriage, and Paul calls it a concession here in verse 6, and it, it's discussed right here. It's a mutual decision to focus on prayer. It's kind of like a fast. That might be good for some of you to do. If you do this regularly, I'd probably say you're doing it too often. So beware. What what Paul even says here in this passage is beware of staying away from that too long lest the devil tempt you. So as we kind of try to land this plane with all these different things that I've said about sex, I just want to say this. Please do not demand sex. That would be the opposite of being generous to one another. Men especially do not demand sex. That's not what's described here. It's a radical picture of other-centeredness. You glorify God in your marriage, according to 1 Corinthians 7, by aiming for mutuality in the marriage bed. Don't withhold from one another. Don't demand from one another. You're a gift to one another. You belong to him. She belongs to you. You both belong to Christ. You're a gift from God. To help each other resist the devil and sexual immorality. And therefore, glorify God in these ways. That's the first one. How married people glorify God. Here's the second one. How single people glorify God. That's verses 7 and 8. You can look at that again. I'll read it again for you. Verses 7 and 8. I wish that all were as I, wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul says twice here that he wishes that everyone was like him. I think you probably already know what he means. He means he's single. Paul calls it a gift. Do you see that? But each has his own gift. That's verse 7. 
a gift. Some of you might be thinking, especially those of you who are single, a gift? My dream is to be married. My dream is to have kids, a family of my own. How's that a gift? Our culture, and I would say church culture too, not just the broad outside there, out, out there culture, but inside the church too, feeds us a, di- a diet of the absolute necessity of at least having a significant other in your life, um, if not being married, and that really being single is just, just the worst. Just get me past it. I need to get over it, get through it. That kind of reasoning, that kind of thinking leads to questions like, God, maybe you just don't want me to be happy if I'm single. Here's what the Bible says about singleness. Your relationship status as a single is a gift. That's what the Bible says. The Bible calls it good. Right here in this passage. If you're single because you haven't married or, or maybe your spouse died or another reason, it, the Bible tells us that it is good to remain single. We're going to talk more about this next week. I'm really tempted to dive headlong into this. I feel like I've got a lot to say about singleness. Um, but here's what we're going to see more about next week when, when Pat comes up here to preach. There's a greater goal for all these different relationships, and that is following Christ. Following Christ on the road of the cross that leads to glory. Following Christ on the road of sacrifice that leads to glory. Remember that from Mark? That was really the theme of the book of Mark. You follow Jesus on the road of suffering that ultimately results in your glory. And that's what, that's what Jesus is inviting you to in marriage or in singleness. There's a great little book um, called Seven Myths of Singleness by Sam Alberry. Some of you have read it. I would highly recommend that everyone read that book. I don't know if you've ever heard me say that before. Um, it's really practical. Why, why should everyone read that? Here's why. If you're single, it's going to encourage you. You're going to see the beautiful, significant, powerful place that God has for you in his purposes for this church and for your relationships and for the community and for the world. You don't, you don't just become somebody when you're married. That's not how it works. And if you're married, you read that book because it's going to open your eyes to be more thoughtful, kind, all around respectful of single people who are in your lives. It's going to show you that God's picture isn't just about your relational status. He's got so much more in mind. Here are some of the myths that um, Sam Alberry tries to dispel. He tries to wipe out. So these are, these are wrong, just to be clear. And he unpackages why these are wrong. Here are some of the myths. First, singleness is too hard. He says it's a myth. Two, singleness requires a special calling. Three, singleness means no intimacy. Four, singleness means no family. He takes on each one of these myths and he crushes it with the weight of God's word. Those of you who are single here, I just want you to hear me say this as we're kind of drawing this to a close. I am so glad that you're part of my family. God has great purposes for you. I've seen that. I've experienced that personally in my own life from you. And I'll add this. Your purposes in this place, your place here, it is not as a default babysitter 
or an extra set of hands because you, quote unquote, don't have anything better to do with your time. It's not true. Your place here is as brother, sister, friend, co-laborer in the cause of Christ. For Christ's community and Champaign-Urbana and to the world. That's your place here. And we're glad you're here. Briefly, verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you're single and you're having sex, stop. Turn to Jesus. Be forgiven of your sin. Pursue holiness. There's a better way. God's way. If you burn with sexual desire, pursue marriage. And if you don't, glorify God for the gift that he's given you. It's good to remain single. Third, how divorces glorify God. Yeah, hot take. It's not what I mean. Hang on. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. When Paul says, not I but the Lord, there in verse 10, what he means is not that this has some sort of special authority in what's coming in verse 12 where he says, I, not the Lord, is like a step down. What he means here is we have specific teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ about divorce. We can see that in Mark 10, for example. Here's the gist of what Jesus is saying. Paul summarizes it for us here. If you're married, stay married. Don't get a divorce. That's how you glorify God, by no divorce. This, however, 1 Corinthians 7, is not an exhaustive treatment of divorce and what the Bible says about it. Paul, for example, doesn't say um, Jesus' exception to allowing divorce if one one spouse commits adultery. So keeping in mind that this this passage right here in 1 Corinthians 7, I just don't have time to go into it today, unfortunately. Um, This isn't the whole picture. But here are some thoughts related to glorifying God by staying in marriage and not divorcing. That's how we glorify God in regard to divorce, by not divorcing. So one, what if marriage is really hard? You know, all kinds of things come up in marriage. Addictions, constant arguing, no sex life, disagreements that just kind of have this cycle, just repeat, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Our pasts come up. Marriage can sometimes feel impossible. I just want to say from a pastoral point of view, I am sorry if that's how your marriage is. I also want to tell you that it's very normal. God's word, which has your greatest good in mind, tells you that you need to stay. You need to stay in that marriage. You can't wash your hands and start over. Marriage doesn't work like that. Plus, there is such great hope for redemption, especially when both spouses know the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. Does God, maybe you're asking the question, does God want me to be happy? What if I'm in despair? And I just want to say again, I hear you on that. And I'm sorry. Many people I counsel through marriage, marriage situations, it feels like to a lot of these people that the only way that they see to get out of this difficult marriage is, the only solution they see to the difficult marriage is to get out. And if that's what you see, that's going to make reconciliation really hard. Hope is not found in getting out of the marriage. Hope is found in trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. He can raise anything up from the ashes. Underneath this passage, kind of hovering like a foundation stone that all this, this very direct, very, very specific advice sits on 
It's the conviction that God will provide. Married people, God will provide for you. Single people, God will provide for you. You who are in difficult marriages, who are contemplating divorce, who are in a very difficult situation right now today, God will provide for you. He will. Do not give up without looking to how God might provide. One of those provisions are the people in this room right here. Three, what if my, fou- what if my spouse is physically hurting me? I wanted to say something about this because in the past, church leaders, on the basis of verses like these, have demanded that people stay in marriages or situations of physical harm or abuse. And that is not, I just want to be really clear, that is not what is being taught here. Physically hurting or abusing someone is wrong. It is incredibly dishonoring to the Lord. It is a criminal act. If you are in a relationship or a marriage where you're being physically hurt, please come talk to me. Please come talk to someone that you know here. We want to help you. No expectations, no demands made of you. We just want to help however we can. And I also want to add this. No matter how difficult your marriage is, whether it's that, physical abuse or something else, there's always hope. Hope for change, hope for restoration in Jesus Christ. There's hope if you have been hurt um, or even if you are hurting someone else. There's hope for you too. I just want to make that clear. But the road, that road, is walked in community with other brothers and sisters who can help you and support you through whatever life decisions you need to make in, re- in light of that. So please press into community here. And here's, here's the last question. What if I am divorced? What if I am divorced? I've got a lot of good friends in this room who are divorced. Um, maybe there's some things that I'm thinking about you guys. Maybe there's some things that you've done wrong that you, you wish you could apologize for or you feel like you should apologize for. Maybe you need to go say something to somebody. Uh, the people I know probably don't need to do that. But maybe you do. Maybe the Holy Spirit's talking to you. I think the most important thing to say to you is this. Those of you who have been divorced, if you're divorced, sometimes you can feel like you're damaged goods, that you're beyond repair. How could God ever use someone like me? A lot of things in life can make us feel that way, not just divorce. I want you to know that is unequivocally not true. God has great things for you here. Great things for your life. We praise God for you. I'm glad that you too are part of my family. And then we come to the last one. How unequal marriages glorify God. I'm going to go fast. I realize there's just so much to say here. Verses 12 through 16, Paul talks about the scenario um, that Jesus doesn't address. A believer married to an unbeliever. It probably happened this way, that one spouse uh, became a Christian. They were both already married, and then one spouse became a Christian, the other one did not. Some of you are in this situation right now. Paul says this in a nutshell, stay put. You really could hang that banner over the whole section. Stay put. Use exactly where the Lord has you right now for, his, for, for the glory of God. If you're married, stay married, glorify God. If you're single, stay single, glorify God. If you're married to a non-Christian, stay married, glorify God. Why? If the Christian is married to a non-Christian, doesn't that massive difference give grounds for a divorce? The Bible says no. It says in verse 14 that the believing spouse makes the other spouse holy and the, and the kids holy too. What does that mean? Basically this. 
that the family has a front row seat, so to speak, to the work of the Holy Spirit in that follower of Jesus. The unbelieving spouse can see up close God's work in the other person. The kids can see God's work in mom or dad. And look at the way that that works. It's the believer, the holy one, that passes it down to everyone else. It's not the other way. It's not the unholy one, the unbeliever, that's passing that on to everybody else. That's God's design. God works that way. So, brother and sister, if you are in a marriage where you're married to a non-believer, be encouraged. God's word tells us right here that he is using your witness at home. I don't know specifically how or when or what that, ex- what that looks like, but you can trust that God is at work here. And in verse 15 and 16, we want to say this. There is a situation where an unbelieving spouse would leave. And in that situation, Paul says, let it be so. For two believers in marriage, the emphasis was on reconciliation. Do not get divorced. Here, we don't see the same demands. There's a type of freedom here to trust God and let that person go if they insist on leaving. As a blood-bought child of God, we're not enslaved to saving the soul of another person. It doesn't rest on our shoulders. We entrust that to God, including if he or she insists on leaving. Just the last thing I'll say in this section is if you're single and you're hoping to get married, let this section be a warning to you. Marry someone who's a Christian. Marry another Christian. What I say to my kids all the time, and they kind of get annoyed me for saying it, is you run hard after Jesus, and as you're running hard after him, you look to your right and your left, and you see who also is running hard after him too. That's who you should marry. I'm going to conclude with this. Thanks for bearing with me. I know there's a lot here. I just want to end on a note of hope. I want to tell you about Jesus. It's hope for marriages, hope for singleness, hope for whatever relational status you have in your life. John 3, verses 29 and 30. John the Baptist says this about Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John's saying that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the groom. And Jesus has come for his bride, the church. The disciples, John's disciples, are streaming to Jesus now. And that's exactly how John wants it. He's so happy. And the very first miracle that we see Jesus do in John is in taking this role, the role of the bridegroom. He's at a wedding. The party's rocking. And then the wine runs out. This is John chapter 2. Who's responsible for the wine? Do you know? It's the groom. The groom is responsible. It's his job, not anyone else's job. And he failed. The husband failed. We all have failed in our relationships with others, in our marriages, in our singleness. We are all sinners, all of us. So what happens with the wine problem? Where does the wine come from at the wedding? It comes from Jesus. The groom let everyone down. Jesus never lets us down. His wine will never run out. He can take the water of your life your marriage, your singleness, whatever it is, and he can turn that into wine, to joy, to redemption, to renewal. When your spouse, your your life, whatever isn't cutting it, whenever it's bringing you down, you turn to the one who will never fail you.
He's the bridegroom. The spouse that all of us need, he gave himself for us, his bride, and his supply never runs out. Love one another, brothers and sisters. Stay committed to one another. Trust God where he has you in his life right now, where he has you in your life right now. Glorify God. Rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never, ever let you down. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, so much, so much important things in this passage today. I pray, Lord, that you grab one thing and push it into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for the marriages in this church that you would strengthen it. I pray for those who are single in this church that you would strengthen them. I pray for those who are divorced that you would strengthen them. I pray for those who are in unequal marriages that you strengthen them, all by the power of the Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we rely and look to you who will never fail us. We're so thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.